when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the government's row with the education profession about schools returning on June the 1st, the U-turn by Boris Johnson over the NHS health surge charge, the government's issues with test, track and trace, why its app is being delayed. We've also got some Brexit news for a change as well as the UK published its draft treaty and set out how it seeks to implement the NI protocol. Where does this leave us with the prospect of a deal by the end of this year? I'm delighted to be joined as ever by our political editor, George Parker, political correspondent, Laura Hughes, and our columnist, Robert Shrimsley. Thank you all for joining. If you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. We're also conducting a little survey to see what you do and don't like about our podcast. Enter and you will have the opportunity to win a lovely pair of Bose noise-cancelling headphones. So do send us your thoughts, good and bad, to ft.com forward slash politics survey. This week, Boris Johnson's government has been dominated by a row about schools. As part of the phase two strategy to exit the lockdown, which is due to commence on June the 1st, the Prime Minister is hoping that schools will return, beginning with years one and six in primary school and gradually moving through more primary school classes and even some secondary classes before the summer break. But the plan has not quite gone as the government had hoped for. Many teaching unions have claimed that it is not safe to open schools so soon when coronavirus is still spreading rapidly throughout the country. Many local authorities have taken the matter into their own hands, with over 30 at the time of recording saying they will not open again on June the 1st. The government has also been under pressure to publish its science advice about why things school can return, as this is all crucial to its efforts to get the economy moving again. So George Parker, this in some ways feels back to the simpler times of 2013, 2012, when Michael Gove, who was then the education secretary, took on the blob. This is the education institution that it saw as local authorities, trade unions and left wing teachers who were they argued were against the government strategy of reforming education. We actually have seen the word blob return this week as the government tried to push schools back into action. You've seen the right wing media arguing for this, but the teaching units have been quite effective in saying there's not enough detail, it's not safe and we can't do it quite yet. That's right. And it does have echoes of the Gove clashes with the teaching unions. But of course, a lot more is at stake now because we've got a whole generation of children whose educational careers are on the line, particularly those approaching GCSE and A-levels next year. And it has been sent into an unseemly scrap between the government and the National Education Union. And undoubtedly, there's a bit of internal union politics going on there. But it's a very difficult one for politicians, both for the Conservative government, Boris Johnson, but also for Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, because I think the public are quite divided on this. I think some parents will have sympathy with the teaching unions. I think lots of parents are understandably anxious about their children going back to school, especially when 
they're not entirely sure whether the science supports it and whether schools can be safe. And then on the other hand, you've got a whole load of parents who think, my child's education has been spoiled by this. I can't go back to work. Let's get these schools open. The unions are behaving in a reprehensible way. And as a result, you've got this rather messy situation where there's a lot of shadow boxing going on. The June the 1st target date for reopening the schools is approaching just after the school half term. And we still don't know from area to area, as you said, Seb, what exactly is going to happen, whether children will be going back on June the 1st. Because some of the issue about this, George, has been the fact they still haven't published the scientific advice about schools returning. That is going to come in the next couple of days, we've been told. But again, this sense that they're not being transparent. And if they put that advice out there, then it would give more confidence in the approach. And it's also confused by the fact we've got this independent sage, which is a whole bunch of advisors and people who used to advise the government who are maybe a bit left-wing in nature, who have come out on Friday morning and said, actually, it's not safe to go back. And there are some very eminent scientists in that group. So when you compare that to the silence from the government, it just adds this general sense of chaos. And you have to wonder how much of a strategy was there behind this? Well, there's been some very unclear science throughout this whole episode, hasn't there, (laughs) right from the start. And I think the science around whether children can pass this disease on to adults and how children are affected by the disease is one of the least clear bits of science. And if you think back to the start of this outbreak, of course, we had SAGE and the government scientific advisors saying that there was very little risk that keeping schools open at all would add to the pandemic. And it's only at the very last minute that they decided to close down the schools. And now we have the scientists arguing about whether it's safe to open them or not. And as you say, until we see some scientific evidence, I think a lot of the teaching unions will continue to say that we can't go back until we see the proof. And I think it's incumbent on the government to actually put some public information out there to try and guide the debate. We're not going to get definitive decision, Laura Hughes, really until May the 28th, because that's the point at which the government will renew or tweak the lockdown. And they've been tracking the R-race that we hear so much about, the reproduction rate of coronavirus. And if it is low enough, then they will give the green light to move to phase two and reduce the COVID alert warning to, I think it's level three, which means schools can reopen, non-essential shops can reopen. But that's not a huge amount of time for schools to prepare. And I guess what the government was trying to do was to give schools that time. But in fact, this time has just been used by arguments and no one really getting anywhere. Exactly. I mean, this whole argument in many ways is slightly hypothetical because it does depend on the decision that's made at the end of this month, whether or not to move, as you say, to phase two of the easing strategy. So everybody's slightly waiting for that. And the issue, of course, was that three, four weeks ago, the unions were telling the government that they needed at least three weeks to prepare for any reopening because they obviously have to look at how classrooms would actually work. So how many pupils you can get in each room, how you can keep everybody two metres apart, how you will be cleaning the building, what extra staff would need to be coming in. And I think the fact that there's still no clarity on this is really confusing, not just for parents and teachers and people themselves, but also the support staff. It's interesting to see the take of the Labour Party and Keir Starmer here, who hasn't really come down on either side of this quite heated argument. And instead, he's been calling for the government to try and find a consensus with the teaching unions. And I think that's because this is quite awkward for Labour. You had David Blunkett, the former Labour Education Secretary, coming out a couple of weeks ago, and he made the point quite strongly that by not encouraging teachers to get back to work, 
you will be harming the prospects of the poorest children in society, the most vulnerable, the ones that really do need the protection of schools and really need that education. And that's a huge problem for Labour because, of course, they will feel that argument, but historically would take the sides of the unions and the safety concerns that they have repeatedly been raising. And the politics of this, Robert Swimsley, are quite interesting because, as we were saying, there's obviously this Govian attitude, which is embodied by Dominic Cummings, who was Mr. Gove's advisor when he was education secretary and is now Boris Johnson's most senior advisor and is no doubt putting the message out there about the blob and taking on left-wing education institutions because that's his bread and butter stuff. But obviously, you have got to this point, which is that the lockdown was instituted for health reasons, to make to save as many lives as possible and to make sure the NHS could cope. But there are the big economic considerations. The government can't prop up the economy forever. And that is going to require some very tough choices along the line. But the government very much does not want to be seen to be choosing the economy over lives here. And lots of the left-wing unions are saying, no, we can't go back. Former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, unsurprisingly, he's been saying, no, they can't go back. But then other people like Tony Blair and David Blunkett have said that in fact they should go back. And Keir Starmer is playing a very sly game of not really saying anything either way and saying that in principle they want them to go back but the government has to meet these tests. How do you think Keir is playing this and where do you think the public mood is on schools? Well from the Keir Starmer point of view I think it's one of the tricks of being leader of the opposition which is to know which fights to pick and when and he hasn't decided which way to jump on this and so he's hanging back for a minute. I think the bigger politics is there are two parts this The first is the way the government unveiled its strategy for easing the lockdown and the fact that there was confusion in several parts of it, not just on schools, and that it hadn't appeared to have done enough of the detail legwork to justify the moves it was planning and to answer the difficult questions that were going to come up. And that rattled confidence. And one of the issues I think that the government's facing is that it has probably spent more political capital than it wanted to spend in the first weeks of this crisis. People are now beginning to doubt it in areas where a few weeks ago they would just say, well, look, that's what the government says. They're doing a good job. We'll get behind them. And I think that the government would have been able to face down the teachers a few weeks back and say, come on, we're looking at the welfare of our children. Let's get behind it. Let's all pull together. But because it's had missteps, because there are doubts over tracing and tracking and care homes and other issues, and also the presentational approach, some of the sheen has come off and it's become a bit easier to question what the government's been about. You're right, of course, that the instincts of some in government, particularly Dominic Hines, Michael Gove, is sort of lash out and attack left-wing teaching unions. My instinct is that that's not the smart way to go. And it was also obvious that they rode back from that a little bit over the last couple of days. The attempt to maintain consensus is clearly the sensible one. And I think we have to remember that it's not all schools going back. It's particularly key years. I think there will be a lot of support for the government on this. So my hunch is the government probably still has more people on their side, but it's a fight it shouldn't have had to have if it had been smarter in some of the earlier stages. This comes to the question of what lockdown was really about and the division within government and between those who thought lockdown was only about stopping the NHS being overrun and those who thought lockdown was about stopping people dying and the two aren't necessarily the same thing. And so that's why you have this division now between those people saying, well, look, the NHS is clearly coping, we can ease faster. 
Indeed, and that division is only going to get more stark as we move through easing the lockdown, that when you're looking at other businesses and other public services, those are very, very difficult decisions for any government to make. But one thing that the Prime Minister and the Health Secretary are always very keen to say is the NHS has coped, in fact, and that there is spare capacity there. And that does lend itself to more loosening, but that also lends it to coronavirus spreading more. Now, the other political issue that's dominating Westminster this week has been the government's test, track and trace strategy, or as it's known now, test and trace, because the track word seems to have been dropped. And that's because the NHS's homegrown app for contact tracing doesn't seem quite to be going to plan. George, if you just give us the overview of where this was at, this scheme was announced by Matt Hancock, I think, last month. And the idea was that we can open up the economy and follow the sort of schemes you've seen in South Korea and other countries that have had much fewer deaths from coronavirus. But in typical British state fashion, we haven't followed the international example and we've been trying to develop our own app and to the surprise of absolutely nobody, it doesn't seem to be quite going to plan. Yes, when Matt Hancock announced plans for this app, it was seen very much as the centrepiece of this new test, track and trace initiative. Then, as you say, bizarrely, I think to most of us, the government decided that it would hand over to the NHS the task of developing a highly complex piece of kit to a division of the NHS called NHS X, and it was sent over to the Isle of Wight for testing. And now, I'm told by ministers that the tests have gone rather well, that the technology works quite well, but strangely enough, it's gone now from being the centre of this track and trace scheme to being almost a nice thing to have a bit further down the line, and it's going to be a matter of weeks before we see it. And the focus is going to be, initially at least, on doing the whole testing and tracing scheme using this army of 25,000-odd people to do the work rather than the app. One of the things that people say, and I suspect this is rather them being wise after the event, is that the experience on the Isle of Wight has taught them that even if people quite like the app, they actually like the human touch. They like the idea of people ringing up and saying, look, I'm really sorry to tell you this, you're going to have to stay at home. And this is one minister said to me was something maybe they could have guessed all the way along. But nevertheless, why is it that we went down the sort of British exceptionalist route and developed our own app rather than going for the -the off-the-shelf one being offered to us by Apple and Google, which is the route many other countries have taken. Laura, you've been in the trenches on this strategy this week, trying to dig into exactly what's gone wrong, what's changed with the app. And on the app front, essentially, the platform provided by Google and Apple, and they obviously have the best understanding of the software in their phones, is to have a localised approach. The personal data of who you've been into contact with is stored on each person's smartphone, whereas the approach taken by NHS X is to have a big centralised database. Can you explain why the government felt having its own big centralised database was important and what you've been hearing about what's been going on in the Isle of Wight. The government still haven't ruled out actually moving over to this programme that's been developed by Apple and that other countries have started to use. And they're not being entirely honest with the public as to why the app is still not ready. And there are still doubts over whether or not we'll be able to launch this in mid-June. There are some issues with the app's algorithm. So working out what advice is given to people at what stage and then how something called the decision tree is built, even where the smartphone technology is widely available, because of course, a lot of people don't have smartphones. The process of how this app is actually going to interact with the human contact tracers still needs to be worked out. And there is an issue that without the app, many of the new sufferers of the virus will have no means of actually identifying the strangers they might have recently come into contact with on public transport or in supermarkets. 
the really interesting point here is that when the government set out their roadmap on May the 11th, they were really clear that in order for track test and trace to work, you needed a number of elements to work together, one of which was this app. And now they're trying to insist it was only ever going to be the cherry on the cake. Then you look at what countries like South Korea were doing. They've been running a track and trace program from the very beginning, early February, they started to use human traces. And international experience has told us that people do prefer human contact, especially when you're asking people to admit that they've broken the lockdown rules and they might have come into contact with more people than they should have done. But what I still can't work out is if we never needed the app in the first place, why did we not roll out this human tracing system earlier when we ramped up testing capacity to 100,000? And the government will say, well, it wasn't needed then. You only really need a track and trace system when you are easing lockdown measures and more people are out and about. But some experts would say, well, it's better to get your numbers of infections so low that you can deploy this strategy and effectively try and kill this out. Which goes back to Robert's point is what is the government's overall strategy here? Is it to get the R level down to zero or is it an acceptance that it will stay above one and it will slowly continue to trickle through society? If you look at this overall, it it just feels to me as though they keep coming out with these big, juicy targets and catchy phrases. Boris Johnson promised a world-class track and trace system. Yet it's going to be June the 1st before we actually start to redeploy this, having decided to stop community tracing and testing on March the 12th. Other countries around the world, less developed countries, Rwanda, Senegal, Vietnam, Taiwan, they've been track and tracing and testing for weeks now, and we have not. The fact that I still cannot get an answer from Public Health England or the Department for Health as to exactly how Track and Trace works without an app is pretty extraordinary. How do we not know how this is going to work at the end of May? It's pretty mind-blowing. Because, Robert, this really comes back to a question that's going to continue to dog the government. And when we get to the inevitable inquiry on this is... What happened in those early weeks of March? Because as Laura was saying, we were contact tracing and we were isolating people when the coronavirus cases were in the tens. And then we suddenly stopped that on March 12th. And it feels like in some ways, all we've been doing since then is to try and get back to that original strategy. And there's been some hints that at the press conferences this week when officials have said that, you know, we didn't have the capacity or the ability to do widespread contact tracing or testing at that point. And again, this sense that we've spent most of the past two months just trying to play catch up. And of course, again, this general sense of confusion has surrounded the government's approach, which doesn't do any favours for Mr. Johnson. I think you put your finger on the key point, which is that They have admitted effectively at press conferences that the reason testing was reduced so much in the early stages of this virus is because they didn't have the capacity to do any more and they needed to focus what capacity they had on the NHS. But I think this all plays to the the bigger point, which is that because of the errors made at the start of this crisis, the, the, the delay in getting into lockdown, the complacency at the very, very, very start of this, when the government really wasn't focusing on it at all properly, they've been running to catch up ever since. And I think if you take, for example, the app, the app was one of those stories which they pushed very, very hard to show how they were getting back ahead of it and how they were getting on top of things. And it was working, you know, the government's popularity rose substantially during the course of this crisis. People wanted their government to be successful. They wanted to believe. But the truth is, they haven't been as good as they actually should have been 
at the start and saying, yes, we've got problems here. Here's our plan to get out of it. It's always been rather a game of whack-a-mole. Here's a problem. Here's a plan. And then we'll see if we can make that plan work. And I think it is sane to be generous towards the government in lots of ways. This is an extraordinary crisis. It's not surprising they're being tested and facing, you know, fires starting all over the place. They just got to run from one to the next. Any government would struggle, particularly government which inherited such a state of unreadiness as this government did. So there are reasons to be generous about it, but it all comes back to the point that they have spent a lot of political capital now getting themselves to a place where they should have been several weeks ago. And Laura's point about using the human testers is a really good example. Actually, they've been employed for a while. They're not doing very much yet because the system isn't up in place. Might it not have been smart to get them working now so we can test that the tracing system actually works, iron out the glitches before we go into full deployment? And I think it's just this sense all the time that everything is being done at the last minute. And although that's partly inevitable in a crisis of this scope, you'd want to feel by now that they're getting a grip on the processes which would lead to a happy outcome. Indeed, George, because as Robert wrote in his column this week, the Conservative Party, the old Maxim goes, has two modes of operation, complacency and panic. And it feels like that has been a lot of what the government's approach has been throughout this crisis. And it felt over the past couple of weeks, there was a bit of a circular firing squad going on with people in the cabinet getting angry at the civil service, the civil service getting angry with the number 10 political team, Boris Johnson angry with everyone. And it could all sort of descend quite rapidly. But then we had an interesting moment, which was PMQs. And so far in PMQs, Keir Starmer has bested Boris Johnson, that he's taken a very forensic approach, to use everyone's favourite term. He's been very calm and gone through all the detail to try and make a very delicate point, not sort of Flashman-style shouting the way David Cameron used to win PMQs. The first two weeks of his encounters with the Prime Minister, Kistama clearly won just by taking apart his arguments. This week, Boris Johnson was clearly better prepared. He was a little bit more on the detail and he fought back much harder. And people thought at the time, well, maybe Boris Johnson has won this one. But then, of course, we had a big policy U-turn that really suggested Keir Starmer absolutely trounced him for the third time running. <laughs> yes, people often say that Prime Minister's question time is a, just a bit of theatre that doesn't really count. And I think you and I have discussed this before, Seb, that it actually does help set the political weather. And at the beginning of this week, there was a feeling that if for the third week in a row, Keir Starmer completely trashed Boris Johnson, it would add to the sense of chaos enveloping Boris Johnson and the government. And you can tell that Boris Johnson's been under the weather. He hasn't looked himself at the dispatch box. But this week, he did come back. He had a bit more energy about him. He was a bit more defiant. And I guess, frankly, some of the novelty around having Keir Starmer at the Labour side of the dispatch box is starting to wear off. The novelty of having a competent leader of the opposition asking difficult questions. So people start to say, well, actually, Boris is starting to look a bit more like himself. Keir Starmer, maybe he's a little bit wooden, maybe not as quick on his feet as he could be. And I think that helped to reset the political atmosphere a bit. And as you said, at the start of the week, there was a sense with the app going off the rails, things were starting to fall apart. So Boris Johnson did commit to getting the track and trace thing up and running by the June the 1st. So he set a target and traces at least a bit of a momentum there. But then finally, as you say, there was this issue about the surcharge that the government imposes on foreign workers to use the National Health Service, a charge which is adds to the cost of uh, applying for a permit to stay here. And there were some very powerful social media messages being put out about how unjust this was, that people who were here saving British people's lives were being asked to pay extra to use the same health service. It seemed to me inconceivable the government could hold the line on this. 
And ultimately, in the end, 24 hours later, Matt Hancock was told to haul up the white flag and the policy was ditched. George is completely right. It was absolutely a win for Starmer in the end. But there are two other points I think it's worth making. One is the speed of Boris Johnson's response, the speed at which he recognised, look, I'm not going to win this one. I've got Tory MPs saying the same thing to me. They don't want to vote against NHS workers. Showed that when the opposition is on its toes, a good government gets on its toes too. It gets out of the hole it's in quickly. And I think that's smart politics. And people won't remember for very long how this happened and what happened. The other point I think that is interesting, however, is that it goes slightly to the biggest issue of the recognition in government of the costs of lockdown, because the politics of this were obvious from the moment its head was raised, that you you couldn't be seen to be hurting health workers at this point. So once this came up, anyone with any political antennae knew which way it had to end. And the fact that the government pushed back even for a few hours shows the extent to which it is worried about money and the thin end of the wedge. Boris Johnson said in the Commons that the charging of foreigners for using the NHS raised 900 million. I'm told that only 90 million of that comes from actually health workers themselves. But the point is money is about to get extremely tight, even if we're living on debt financing for a while. And so the reluctance to do anything which costs more money is obvious even now. And I think that's one of the issues that's bubbling away under this. And finally, briefly, I just want to return to a topic that's dominated so many of our FT politics podcasts, Brexit. Yes, it was back on the agenda again and a nice turn to normality. The UK published its draft text of what it would like from a free trade agreement. David Frost sent this along with a letter to Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator, with some tough words about the approach and saying the UK will not bend, it will not change its approach, and it will not ask for an extension. The details of this actual treaty suggest that despite the insistence from the government that all it wants is a bog-standard deal, the sort that Canada has, in fact, the UK is still cherry-picking somewhat. It's looking for a trade deal that has many of the privileged access rights to EU without many of the obligations. I think most people reading this thought that both sides are still pretty far apart. George, just take us through briefly what was in that and also what we've heard on the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is a crucial part of the withdrawal agreement that Boris Johnson signed up to last year. Yeah, well, it came in two parts, really. As you said, the first thing was the government published in detail its negotiating text, so the detail of what it wants from the trade negotiations. And we saw for the first time in black and white that basically the government, yes, is aiming for a source of Canada-style trade deal, the kind of ones that the EU's negotiated with Canada or South Korea or Japan. But in a number of key areas, as Michel Barnier was quick to point out, Britain does seem to want bits of the single market which are not available to other countries. So, for example, mutual recognition of qualifications for lawyers, stuff on the rules of origin. Uh, So it seemed to clarify really what's at the heart of this, which is Britain on one hand is saying, we're not asking for very much, what's the problem? And the EU saying, actually, you're asking for quite a lot. And in a stinging rebuke from Michel Barnier to Britain later in the week, he basically said, look, we're not obliged to give you a Canada-style deal or a Japan-style deal or a Korea-style deal. All those deals were bespoke deals. They reflect our relationship with distant countries on the other side of the world in some cases, not with the UK. So things, frankly, seem to be heading for a big bust up in June, as many people would have predicted at the outset, which is when Boris Johnson has a high-level meeting with the European Commission team. And the second bit was the Northern Ireland protocol, which we've talked about many times before, where we got for the first time Michael Gove setting out how Britain intends to implement the border controls in Northern Ireland that came with that special status that Northern Ireland was afforded, which basically with one foot in the 
UK market and one foot in the EU market. And surprise, surprise, when Boris Johnson said there would be no checks at all on trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, that turned out not to be true. And in fact, there will be checks at the borders in Northern Ireland. Even if there'll be no customs infrastructure, there will be people with peaked hats, probably hanging around the ports, probably working in sheds reserved for animal inspectors, but the checks will happen all the same. And as George said there, we're probably heading for a big bust up in June. And if I was to put a little bet on it, or never a good idea when talking about politics or particularly Brexit, we'll have a bust up in June, things will fall apart, but then somehow before the end of the year, they can get back on the table and some kind of deal will be done, even if it is very loose. But we'll come back to that in the future and many more times, I'm sure. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much as ever to George, Robert and Laura for joining us. In the meantime, if you like what you've heard and like to see some more FT journalism, then our latest subscription offers can be found at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Breen Turner. Until next time, thank you for listening, stay safe and keep well. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.